You are listening to Feminist Current. I'm Megan Murphy. In Robert Jensen's new book, The End of Patriarchy, Radical Feminism for Men, he asks one question. What do we need to create and maintain stable, decent human communities that can remain in a sustainable relationship with the larger world? His answer is feminism. The book puts forth a radical feminist challenge to institutionalized male dominance, offers a historical and social analysis of patriarchy itself, a critique of the sexual subordination of women manifested through industries like the sex trade, as well as a cohesive challenge to gender identity politics and the transgender movement. The anti-patriarchy really isn't only for men. But in suggesting the radical feminist analysis as a basis for undoing the institutionalized hierarchy that harms people and the planet, he creates a powerful argument for men to adopt this approach as allies and as agents of change. Robert Jensen is a professor in the School of Journalism at the University of Texas, a founding board member of the Third Coast Activist Resource Center, and a member of the board of Culture Reframed. I spoke with him over the phone last week. Here's that interview. So first, the most obvious question. Why, why engage men in radical feminism? Well, for me, this project goes back nearly 30 years now. Um, when I started the graduate school, I was about 30 years old. So it was literally about half my life ago. And at that time, as I always joke, Uh, I knew a lot about feminism. That is, I knew that feminists were ugly women who couldn't get dates. Mm -hmm. In other words, what I would have told anybody at that time uh, was the the version of feminism I'd learned from the culture. So I went into my graduate education with with that assumption. Um, But that assumption didn't survive very long because I started reading the work of feminist scholars. I started meeting feminists in my... uh, university career and working with feminist activists in the community. And of course, all of the, the distortions uh, and caricatures of feminism I learned my whole life quickly faded away. And I learned that feminism not only had a, a penetrating critique of the nature of male dominance as it affected women and girls, but it also helped me understand my own pain, my own frustration with the expectations that patriarchy puts on men. So the way I, I summarize that is simply saying that I spent the first half of my life being told that feminism was a threat to me. And once I started studying feminine, feminism and meeting feminists, I learned that feminism is actually a gift to men. And I was originally trained in this version of feminism that we typically call radical feminism, Uh, And even though it's gone out of style in pop culture, it still seems to me the most compelling way to understand sex, gender, power, violence in this culture. And so, you know, nearly 30 years later, I'm still trying to make that argument. Mm. And you in the book address the fact that some might question why anyone would or should want to hear from a man on radical feminism. And... I thought that the point that you made around identity was 
Um, good and interesting. You know, the idea that identity alone doesn't determine the value of a person's analysis of how to understand the world. Um, I wonder if you can expand on that idea and also address that, that question. You know, why, why would we want to hear from a man on radical feminism? Well, you know, as you point out, uh, the value of anyone's analysis of the world is not reducible to identity. Um, you know, I learned uh, early on in feminism that feminism was a political movement that came out of the experience of women. And as a man who had been trained not to pay much attention to women's experience, uh, I, I needed to, to stop talking so much and start listening. And that was an important part of my own education. But, you know, as I point out in the book, if you listen but never speak, uh, it's worth asking, what's the point? Uh, if you change the way you see the world, if you take in new ways of thinking and you form an analysis of the world, analysis of the world, uh, it seems to me one would want to share that with others. Now, the way in which one does it is important. I try not to go around, you know, pretending I have the definitive word on gender politics and explaining it to everybody. But I do think that men have something to contribute to the conversation especially when we take seriously the voices of women. And that's what I've been trying to do. The other reason that I wrote this book is more pragmatic uh, and in a way um, kind of paradoxical because I'm well aware that as a middle-aged white male with a PhD in a university position, my voice carries more authority than some other people's, not because I'm smarter necessarily, but because I have those identity markers and those positions. And so taking what I've learned from women, articulating it in my own voice with my own experience added, and and trying to speak uh, to, especially to an audience of men, it seems to me in just political terms can be a pragmatic, uh, a pragmatic position. Uh, you know, I try to keep myself in check. I work with women. I work in feminist organizations. And I feel pretty confident that there are a lot of women who, if I get out of line or say something stupid, won't hesitate to tell me. And that's an important check to make sure one is accountable. But uh, in the end, you know, I, I can't hide the fact that I think after, you know, again, nearly 30 years of working on this issue, I think I have something to say. And it's refracted through my own experience and, and I think best told in my own voice. Mm-hmm. And when it comes to men in feminism, I mean, it's a complicated issue, right? Because women have been betrayed by men so often that, of course, we're, we're wary of men's um, role in, in our movement. But, you know, one of the really big problems with men in feminism is that they tend to glom on to, you know, what I would often call a liberal feminist approach. And they really... Um, they really reject radical feminism to the point where they'll smear radical feminists or, or try to silence radical feminists in the name of feminism, in the name of, you know, kind of sticking up for oppressed or marginalized groups. And it's really odd that um, men sort of so often feel entitled or, or righteous in, in doing that. I wonder if you've noticed that and, and whether you can speak to that, um, that, that trend. Yeah, I, I think that's 
True. I think anytime there's a truly radical critique of any system of power, people in the privileged positions, in this case, you know, men responding to a truly radical critique of patriarchy, there's going to be a tendency for people in those privileged positions to try and find a way to acknowledge the nature of the, the oppression, but, you know, sort of take the rough edges off of any critique that might, you know, actually force me or anyone else to, to actually change. Uh, and so that tendency is hardly surprising. I think you see it not only in the way men approach feminism, but the way white people approach critiques of racial injustice, the way middle class and wealthy people approach critiques of the economy and, and economic injustice. It's a pretty standard position. And, you know, I've tried to avoid that. Uh, I, I owe it mostly to the people I think I met when I first was exposed to feminism. Uh, that is both the women I met who were really these incredibly generous, but very principled and, and very tough women. And in my early experience with them, when I did make mistakes in public or, you know, we would do presentations and I would say something stupid. The first thing we would always do after the end of the presentation was they would take me aside and tell me how stupid that was. And I, and they helped me learn. The other thing that aided me was my, my first uh, exposure to a man in feminism was a very principled man who kind of provided me with a role model of how to try to, to walk this line. And so I feel really fortunate to have had early experiences that sort of, sort of set me on a path. Uh, it, but, you know, in the end, it's easy to always tell a story about how self-righteous one is, and that's dangerous as well. Um, you know, I, I see a lot of men doing a lot of different kinds of work in feminism. Some of them don't necessarily take up the radical perspective, but I see them doing good work, you know, in anti-violence education and things like that. And so I try not, <clears throat> excuse me, to be too harsh. So rather than, you know, criticizing others a lot, what I try to do is just keep articulating this radical perspective, which, as I said, 30 years ago struck me as the most compelling way to understand sex, gender, and power. And 30 years later, it seems an even more compelling way. And so I try to focus on that and spend less time worrying about what other men are doing. Um, but I must say the male allies I find in this who are committed to the radical feminist critique are some of my best friends in the world. And and the men who who sort of take up the more liberal perspective, I find, you know, are, are simply not doing work I'm that engaged with. Mm-hmm. In talking about the way that we as a society have really failed to honestly address the realities of white supremacy, imperialism, capitalism, patriarchy. Um, you quoted James Baldwin, and I really like this quote. And, and he says, and the quote you used is, if you've got any sense, you realize you'd better not run. Ain't no place to run, so walk toward it. At least that way you'll know what hit you. Um, what do you think, or why do you think we avoid seeing and speaking the truth when it comes to systems of oppression and, you know, these violent systems like yeah. white supremacy, imperialism, capitalism, patriarchy? How do we overcome that? Well, that Baldwin quote uh, was really compelling because he's talking about the fact that it's, you know, we all feel a certain kind of terror. Even people in privileged positions, if we're honest with ourselves, at some level, know there's a lot to be scared of in this world. And, and that advice to kind of walk toward it instead of always run away from it uh, really struck me as, as powerful. You know, why do people avoid it? Well, people in 
positions of unearned power and privilege avoid it for an obvious reason, because it allows us to hold on to that power and privilege and avoid having to be morally self-reflective about it. Uh, but even people who don't have that kind of power, that kind of wealth, privilege, it's a lot to confront the systems of power. You know, you just listed the key systems that structure virtually the entire world. Um, patriarchy, I think, being perhaps the most foundational, right? institutionalized male supremacy. White supremacy defines much of the world. The barbarism of capitalism that produces worldwide poverty and incredible wealth. The, you know, the last 500 years of imperialism, most recently perpetrated by my own country, the United States, um, that's produced literally millions of deaths around the world. And then, of course, the overarching ecological crises, which are the product of human beings believing they somehow naturally dominate the world by, by divine right. Um, all of these are now devolving in ways where it's pretty hard to look at the world and say, you know, it's going to be a, a bright and sunny day tomorrow. I think everybody at some level realizes we are living through a kind of end times. And I don't mean, you know, the rapture and the end of the world. But I think the end of these systems, they simply are no longer coherent. They were always, from my point of view, morally unacceptable. But now they're no longer, you know, coherent. They, they're not structuring in the world in a way that can be sustained. And I think a lot of people are scared of that. Now, you know, we're talking a couple of weeks after the election of Donald Trump in the United States. And so, that, you know, that fear took a, a very palpable form in people being willing to vote for, um, well, let me see, how do we describe Donald <laughs> Trump at this point? Uh, but somebody who who says to them, you know, the, the fear is legitimate, but I'm going to take care of it. The strongman figure, the charismatic figure. Um, you know, I, I think this fear permeates everyday life um, for almost everybody. Mm -hmm. A lot of people will defend patriarchy. Um, they aren't always overtly saying that they're defending patriarchy, but they're yeah. defending, you know, social differences between the sexes or uh, male violence or you know, sexual domination, um, you know, the way that we understand heterosexual sex as, as male centered, um, things like that on account of human nature. And, you know, they'll point to other mammals and say, well, this happens here and this happens there. Rape happens here. There's violence in nature, et cetera, et cetera. This is, this is natural. We really can't do anything about it. What do you make of this argument? You know, is violence and domination human nature? Well, you know, at, at some level, there, there's some truth in saying that human nature is brutal and violent and all that in the sense that those are realities of human experience. So we're capable of them. So they're part of our nature. But of course, we know that human nature is, is plastic. It's easily formed and social structures and ideologies and moral values structure the way human nature uh, ends up playing out. So to say it's human nature is kind of a, a, an empty claim in a lot of ways. Uh, what we really want to know is, are there parts of human nature that are sort of naturally dominant? And and here is where the secular defense of patriarchy kicks in, uh, typically under the heading of what they call evolutionary psychology. But it mistakes human history because, of course, most of human history was not lived in patriarchy. So if we're going to look at our evolutionary history, what we're going to find is that the dominant themes in human evolutionary history 
that created the possibility of decent human communities were collaborative and cooperative in which there was no rigid gender hierarchies. All of that is a product of patriarchy. Uh, the the uh, assumption that, that male and female will always be in relationships of hierarchy is not part of human history throughout. It's only the recent past, you know, maybe the last six, 7,000 years. So if human nature is going to be used as evidence, it should be evidence that patriarchy is distinctly unnatural. Now, remember, there's also a theological version of this defense of patriarchy, especially one hears it in societies like the United States that are highly religious. Uh, and that's to say it's not necessarily human nature through evolution, it's human nature by divine gift that God established this order that has the husband on top, the wife below, the children, you know, then the dog, the cat, the goldfish, whatever the hierarchy is. Uh, and there are hard versions of that, uh, a kind of hard patriarchy, <clears throat> excuse me, with a theological base. And then there are softer versions that say, you know, men should be kind and, and gentle with women as they dominate. Uh, but in the end, of course, whatever the justification for patriarchy, whether it's hard, soft, or otherwise, when you tell one group of people, in this case men, that they in some way are naturally dominant over another group, that is women, what we know is that inevitably abuse stems from that kind of ideology. You cannot tell one group of people that they are naturally superior to another, naturally dominant over another, and not expect that kind of abuse. It's inherent in, in that kind of relationship. So justifications for patriarchy uh, abound, but they all fall apart. And the consequences of patriarchy are now quite clear. Uh, the, the one I focus on most in the book is violence and sexual exploitation of women and girls. Uh, that's one particularly pernicious result of patriarchy. And you know, apologies aside, we either deal with that or we don't, and I don't see a way to deal with it without a radical feminist critique. Mm. Speaking of nature, I was glad that you addressed the difference between sex and, and gender in the book. Um, and lately it's become popular to accuse radical feminists of biological determinism for noting the differences between sexes and, and the role biological sex plays in patriarchy. And you know, often these people will bring up intersex as a means to challenge the notion that male and female are real categories in this world and, and that these categories um, very much matter in terms of feminist discourse. What's the problem with that argument? Yeah, you know, you're pointing to the fact that part of the problem today is that the terminology we use is so confused and confusing it can be hard to even have a coherent conversation with people. And that's why in the book, as you point out, I go back and I remind folks that, you know, in the 1970s, the, the feminist movement made this clear distinction between biological sex and, and male and female as, as biological categories are real. They're based in reproduction. And since I believe in, you know, Darwinian evolution by natural selection, I think reproduction is important to pay attention to. Uh, as you point out, there's a category we call intersex, which is people born with ambiguous characteristics, whether it's chromosomal, gen uh, genitalia, secondary sexual characteristics. But that doesn't somehow magically uh, change the way we reproduce. You know, there's lots of anomalies in, in any population. For instance, um, you know, human beings have a visual system, and that visual system is essential to our place in the world. Yet there are people born congenitally blind. 
but that doesn't mean the human visual system is less important. So there's lots of anomalies in, in these aspects, and, and they, don't just, they don't change the nature of that biological reality. Now, we use gender uh, as the term for the culturally constructed meaning that is applied to those sex categories. And so sex and gender are still very important categories. I am unambiguously biologically male, I was socialized in a patriarchal society into masculinity to take up this position we call man. Uh, and those are very clear differences in sex and gender. Uh, sex can't be changed. I'm unambiguously male and will remain that from the rest of my life. But we can, you know, try to change the way we socialize people into these gender categories of masculine and feminine. And that was always the feminist project to to not deny the reality of biology, but to challenge the construction of gender and patriarchy. And I see nothing that's changed to make that project any less important. In fact, it's probably more important than ever. Uh, there are some trends in other styles of feminism. We've been talking primarily about radical feminism, but in, in other forms of feminism, sometimes called liberal or postmodern or third wave, uh, different terms that sometimes describe the same points of view. Uh, there's a lot of confusion about this and a lot of attempts to pretend that, you know, for instance, that sex is culturally constructed, a, a claim I still don't understand how mm. biological differences between male and female in reproduction can be culturally constructed. As I always point out, there's no way to culturally construct my body into being able to bear a child. It's simply not possible. So there's confusion everywhere. Some of this has to do with the growing strength of the transgender movement. Some of it has to do with this general approach to intellectual work that we call postmodernism, which I think has been, for the most part, uh, an impediment to clarity. And so here we are, you know, decades later, still trying to make points that seem to have been adequately explained, you know, 40 years ago. You point out that radical feminism has lost ground in the U.S. and has even been rejected in some feminist circles, as, as we discussed earlier. And you, ex you express surprise at how profoundly radical feminist ideas have been ignored and rejected, um, not only within dominant culture, but within feminism. How do you ha see this happening, and why do you think it is? You know, do you think that it's... Is there a modern backlash? Has this, you know, kind of been going on all along? Is there something new happening right now in terms of that rejection? Well, first of all, while I think it's true that radical feminism has lost ground, we should note that there's really an exciting group of younger feminists coming up who are reasserting the radical position. For instance, there's this uh, really great online magazine called Feminist Current. I don't know if you know, <laughs> where you're seeing you're seeing younger voices. Uh, you know, literally people half my age and younger, and that's really exciting. So I don't want to pretend that radical feminism is somehow you know dead and and gone. Uh, I think there is a resurgence of it in part again because I think it's the most compelling way to understand these questions. But why did radical feminism get Push to the margins so much, let's just say in U.S., especially U.S. intellectual spaces, women's studies departments and such things. Well, I've lived through this because I got into all of this in 1988, just about the time the radical feminist position was starting to be marginalized. So I've seen it literally my whole career. Uh, why does that happen? Well, you know, I can't speak for others, and I'm not a, a woman who's had to struggle with this. But I think in some ways, uh, you know, when women's studies departments became institutionalized in U.S. universities, 
not just in the U.S., but I'm, I'm thinking of my experience here, uh, the more radical versions of it became more difficult to maintain because it was such a challenge, not only to men's power, but a, a radical feminist critique tends to lead to critiques of other forms of power. For me, you know, the, as I always say, the first door I, I opened in this study of, of hierarchy was gender. But it pretty quickly led me to rethink my ideas about race, about capitalism, about U.S. imperialism, about ecology. And I think these kinds of radical analyses are typically not welcome in institutions. And so when feminism became part of these institutions, it was a probably uh, an inevitable trend to try and mute the most radical voices. The other thing, of course, is, you know, a lot of the early debates um, were around things like pornography, prostitution, men's sexual exploitation of women. And for all sorts of reasons, those industries really exploded and became not only larger, but more mainstream. And so a feminism that was in direct opposition to some of these cultural trends was going to have a tough time, I think, you know, getting a, a place in the institution. Some of the younger women I've talked to uh, have told me that part of the difficulty in holding on to a radical analysis is it just feels uh, like the whole culture is moving a different way. And to, to do that, to hold on to that radical analysis, marks you as an outsider. Now, you know, some of us maybe don't mind being outsiders. In a way, this is partly a function of personality maybe, but most people, you know, want to be considered part of, uh, of a group, of a culture and and fit in. And so I think there are lots of reasons, some of them purely about institutional realities, some about, you know, the direction of the, the culture, and some of them about, you know, individual personal psychology. Whatever the case, in my university, the University of Texas at Austin, which is, you know, one of the four or five largest universities in the United States, the radical perspective that I articulate is definitely the minority feminist position on campus. Uh, the critique of pornography that came from women like Andrea Dworkin uh, is clearly a marginal position on this campus. And I'm talking within feminism now. Uh, that's just the reality. Uh, in a way, uh, it, it's rather depressing to see an analysis that is so compelling and, and explains the world so well to be ignored. Uh, but that's another reason to keep you know, to keep on writing and speaking and organizing. Uh, and, you know, people will continue, but uh, we're, we're, we're fighting a, a long battle here. And it's going to be a while, I think, before the radical perspective takes its place at the heart of feminism, which I think it should. And at least I hope it eventually will. So speaking of the institution uh, and academia, you were recently added to a professor watch list, which yes. <laughs> appears to be a list of American professors accused of being radicals. And you're specifically accused of discriminating against conservative students, promoting anti-American values and advancing leftist propaganda in the classroom. Uh, you know, this sounds an awful lot like a reiteration of McCarthyism. What's, what's going on here? Well, it, it has that same language, but we should note that it's this watch list. It's called the professor watch list. It just 
came out about a, a few days before we're speaking here. Uh, it's not issued by the government. It's not a state project. It's from a conservative group of young people who have taken it up uh, as their mission to, you know, to police college campuses. That said, even though there's not the power of the government behind this, it is disturbing. It's not the first time this has happened. I think this is the third watch list I've been on. Uh, the first one was specific to the UT campus. It was a project that was going on all over the country. Conservative students were in, being encouraged to create them on their own campus. Then there was a, a national one, and now this is the second version of this. And there's never been any you know, consequence to me as a result. I've never been disciplined or punished. And the reason is simply because the claims that are made on these lists that somehow people like me are inappropriately politicizing the classroom simply doesn't hold up. Because if you sit through my classes, um, I think you'll find that I teach responsibly. I do bring up these critical perspectives, but I don't impose them on students. I try to, to explain the, the, the origins of them, the ideas, where they came from. We talk about the importance of defining terms and providing evidence and using rationality to come to conclusions. And, you know, almost every day in my class, I, I remind students that they don't have to agree with everything I say, that I'm trying to help them come to understand the world they live in, not trying to tell them how they have to act in that world. And so uh, in some ways, these watch lists are kind of a joke. They're mostly designed by conservative groups to generate fundraising and publicity. But on the other hand, I don't want to be too glib because while it doesn't really matter that much to me, we have to remember I am a white, middle-aged male professor with tenure at a large state university. I'm about as protected as it comes. But imagine a, a, a female colleague who ends up on this list or a person of color or someone who's not tenured or someone who's not a U.S. citizen, uh, it may be a lot scarier to them. And of course, the other thing that makes this list particularly important is that it is coming after the election of Donald Trump. Mm -hmm. And, you know, new levels of racism, misogyny, uh, xenophobia uh, are really, you know, being unleashed in this country. We haven't seen this kind of overt racism, for instance, uh, probably in about a half a century in this country at least not at this level. So I don't want to, you know, joke too much about the watch list. It's not bothering me. But for other people, it can be a threat, and it can be a particular threat at this particular moment in history. And, you know, while this, this particular list might not be a threat, I find that, you know, here in Canada and in, in the UK and in the US too, those of us who are associated with radical feminism, who are radical feminists, um, who put forth a radical mm -hmm. feminist critique, are also, you know, kind of being put on lists. Uh, women like Julie Bindle uh, yeah. have been no platformed in the UK. There was a petition started by pro-prostitution lobbyists and, and some liberal feminists and, and people who identified as leftists um, in Canada, mostly on the East Coast, who started a petition to have me fired and no platformed. This has happened to a lot of women everywhere. Yeah. I mean, I guess I find this trend troubling because it's not just coming from the right or from conservatives, but it's coming from 
the left and yeah. and from people who who even sometimes identify as feminist. Uh, like, what do you think about that? Uh, well, you're absolutely right about that. And and here, when we're talking about people outside the the reasonably comfortable confines of the university system, we're talking about writer, independent writers, activists, organizers. Then the threats are real, uh, and and they are disturbing. So the kinds of you know abuse you suffer routinely. Uh, is part of a reactionary program to shut down critique. Uh, and as you say, it's not coming solely from the conservatives. In fact, a lot of it is from the liberal, postmodern, third-wave wing of feminism. Uh, and it is troubling. As you know, a lot of it, this is rooted in the, the current sort of, I, I, I was going to say dominance of the transgender movement in feminism, Dominance might be a little too strong a word, but at least in the liberal circles that I'm familiar with, uh, to offer a principled critique of the ideology behind the transgendered movement is, in fact, an invitation to being shunned, being marginalized, and as you point out, sometimes being attacked, uh, people being you know, taken off of speaking lists, people being refused uh, space, all that sort of thing. If we can't have an open discussion about uh, this kind of issue, it seems to me uh, the left, feminists, liberals, whatever, are actually uh, worse off than the right in that sense uh, because they're suppressing a conversation within a political movement. I wish I could say I think this is going to turn around and there will be you know more space for open dialogue, but the trend doesn't seem to be heading that way. Um, it's also important to point out here that uh, it's another reason I, I wrote the book. For a long time, for instance, I had not written about the question of the ideology behind the transgender movement. And some some feminist friends challenged me and said, you know, the the consequences for women challenging that movement are pretty extreme. And maybe it's time you stepped up and took some of that heat. And I took that challenge seriously and, and wrote a series of online pieces to try and do that. And what was most striking to me is that while I did get critiqued, it was pretty, pretty mild, uh, mostly confined to some local left spaces here in Austin, Texas, where I live. And it passed pretty quickly. And it was a reminder that one of the roles that men can play in feminism is to stand up and say things that women are going to be attacked for, uh, to try and provide some sort of solidarity, sometimes even some cover. And that's another reason I, I think it was important for me to write this book at this particular moment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I appreciate you bringing that up. It was, you know, I, I recently started to speak out more about uh, gender identity politics and what's often framed as as uh, trans rights, but, you know, is often kind of rooted in anti-feminist rhetoric. Yeah. And... It's had a really big impact me on me, and you know, recently I actually I went to um, the University of Northern BC to speak on a panel that was about uh, women in media, and uh, some of the organizers let me know before the event happened that another woman on the panel who's a uh, um, involved in in bitch media in the United States, which is a, a third wave mm-hmm. feminist online magazine and a, and a print magazine also had tried to get me kicked off the panel. 
And I don't know all the details, but I was told that it was because of trans issues. So, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm laughing because I, I think yeah. it's kind of insane, but it's, it's so accepted that it's okay to silence and, and smear and, and no platform anyone yeah. who, who, who speaks against this or, or even ask critical questions. Yeah, and a lot of what I think the feminist, the radical feminist critique of the ideology behind the trans movement, and I always frame it that way, I'm not attacking individual people. I am asking critical questions about an ideology, about a framework to understand gender, what's, as you point out, being called this sort of gender identity movement. And if we can't ask those questions, well, then we're abandoning any hope of rational dialogue. Uh, we're literally abandoning, you know, kind of the core values of the Enlightenment, which is the, the idea that we can use human reason to, to come to understand the world better. You, you know, if, if that's where we're at, then, you know, kind of all hope is lost. And as you point out, it can get rather absurd. I Just as an example, the first time this happened to me, um, there was a Muslim student group that was putting on a, a program about Islamophobia and the threats to Muslim students. This was about a year and a half ago. And they had a Facebook page to advertise the event. And all of a sudden, trans activists were flooding the Facebook page, asking them to disinvite me from a program that had nothing to do with feminism or gender at all. It was about the question of Islamophobia. Right. And the Muslim students were somewhat taken aback and they, they kind of looked at me and said, what is going on here? And, and I had to explain to them that, well, there's a, a movement that thinks it has a right to come into other progressive spaces, even spaces that aren't designed for this conversation, and simply impose a point of view without any space for dialogue. You know, I've been saying that I'm happy to speak about this with people on the other side. Uh, but have yet to be invited to do that. Uh, and, and what I'm doing mostly is just asking some simple questions, which is, you know, if one is unambiguously male, as I am, for instance, what does it mean to claim to be female? Uh, as I understand, as I said, evolutionary theory in modern biology, that claim simply doesn't make sense to me. I don't know what it could possibly mean. And I've yet to read or, or hear a theory presented that makes sense of it. So, you know, simply saying that if we're going to have public policy decisions made about this gender identity question and we are afraid to or not allowed to have questions about the fundamental claims being made, then what kind of public policy debates can happen if all of this is somehow excluded from debate? Uh, it seems to me to be a very dangerous precedent to say that we will make public policy decisions without allowing principled people who have rational questions to participate in those debates. That's a scary thought. If we were to generalize, generalize that more broadly, it essentially says there, we don't believe in democracy. That's, mm -hmm. I hope, not where we're heading. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, exactly. Before we wrap up, I wanted to uh, switch gears just a tiny bit because, um, you know, you've done a lot of work prior to writing this book and, and you, you talk about this in the book as well, but you've done a lot of work around men's use of pornography. Um, mm -hmm. and, and that was how I discovered your work, actually, through your, your book, Getting Off. And 
I'm just curious to know how men have responded to, to this work. Well, for a long time, when I first started, as I said, in the late 80s, you could be pretty much guaranteed that if you did a, a program in public with men in the audience critiquing men's use of pornography, there would be a lot of hostility. Men were defensive, they were angry, because everyone understood we were challenging men, challenging men's right to use women in any way they found sexually pleasurable. What has shifted over time is very interesting that so many young men, especially men who grew up in the Internet age, realize that their sexual imaginations have been shaped by this openly misogynistic, often very racist pornography, and that it's not only politically troubling, but it's emotionally troubling to them because it's affected their ability to be functioning sexual beings in the world. You know, uh, I hear often, in fact, there are now online forums where men are sharing these stories about, about you know, essentially being sexually dysfunctional without pornography. Uh, and, and even men who are, you know, big fans of pornography recognize that that is going to inhibit their ability to live, you know, full and decent human lives. So the, the reaction has changed. There's still a lot of men who are hostile and defensive when you challenge their right to use women sexually. But more and more, the extreme nature of pornography, the readily uh, accessible pornography that comes through the Internet, has so distorted men's own personal lives that they're starting without any feminist analysis, at least at the beginning, to understand the consequences of this, at least for themselves. And I think, you know, my job as a as a man rooted in a radical feminist critique is to say, okay, it's not only, though, about how it affects your sex life, it's about how it affects the lives of women and girls. And there's both, in that sense, an argument from self-interest. You should resist the pornographic culture for your own sake. But there's an even more compelling argument from justice that we, we have an obli a moral obligation, you know, an, an, an obligation based on basic human decency to challenge systems that routinely result in these levels of harm to women and girls. So that's the, the sort of ray of hope, is that as the radical feminist critique of pornography has been increasingly marginalized, people are still coming to it because it does help answer questions. And as the pornography in the culture you know, becomes even more accessible and even more extreme, I think it's even more important to keep the radical feminist critique of pornography alive so that when people do need it, it will be there. And of course, we see that radical feminist critique of pornography as part of a larger feminist analysis of men's exploitation of women, of men's violence against women. And as I said, it's also a gateway into understanding the, the effects of hierarchy more generally. It helps us understand and come to critiques of white supremacy and capitalism and imperialism. So, you know, it, it used to be uh, said that if, you aren't radical when you're a young person, you have no heart. And if you're not conservative when you're older, you have no head. That is that, you know, young people are passionate, but then as we get old, we get more sensible. And in my case, it's been exactly the opposite. The older I get, the more radical I get, you know, not because of some headstrong passion, but because it seems that these radical critiques do a better job of explaining the world around me. And so I keep, I keep at it. And finally, you know, say a man is, is listening to this, maybe he's just starting to learn about radical feminism, 
what what should he do you know what how does he how does he get involved what what could his role be in the movement well in some ways wherever we live there's a way to to try to inject a radical feminist critique into all that we're doing whether it's in the workplace or in other political movements but if somebody wants to really focus on on men's exploitation of women for instance there are some places where you can show up and there will be immediate ways to contribute you know take rape crisis centers and domestic violence shelters which are in the US often combined into one agency uh they're not all run on radical feminist principles but they do focus on the victims of men's violence and there are ways that men can contribute often behind the scenes you know doing office work or fundraising or helping with events but whether or not you're out front speaking or not if you get involved in those things it puts you in contact with women who are working to improve the lives of women and girls and that will help men that was a lot of how i originally got involved now there are other groups forming as i said there are some groups of men against pornography uh, men who are trying to you know separate from the addictive like effects of pornography and those aren't always radical feminist spaces but men who develop a feminist analysis can certainly enter those spaces and try to to help others see the the power of this analysis so i think there are you know lots of ways people can get involved uh, and of course the most important thing is simply not being afraid to speak about this i'm i'm often amazed how often people are terrified of even making a, a reference to feminism in a group that you know may include people who aren't necessarily feminist so we need to support each other in what may seem rather trivial but just often does take courage to start finding our own voice and not being afraid to to tell truths that we know about how this world works and and everybody can start with that. Mhm. Thank you so much uh thank you so much for all your work and you know for your your solidarity and your allyship and um thanks so much for taking the time to talk with me today. I really appreciate it. Well, and thank you for feminist current and all the work that that you and as I said this whole new generation of younger feminists are doing. It's it's very heartening it's very exciting and you know, in whatever ways some of us old folks can contribute to it we're grateful that you're there so thank you you just heard an interview with robert jensen author of numerous books including plain radical living loving and learning to leave the planet gracefully getting off pornography and the end of masculinity and the heart of whiteness confronting race racism and white privilege his forthcoming book, The End of Patriarchy: Radical Feminism for Men, will be out in early 2017 from Spinifex Press. That is all the time we have for today. I'm Megan Murphy. Thanks for tuning in to Feminist Current. You can find us online at feministcurrent.com. Tweet at us at Feminist Current or send us an email at info at feministcurrent.com. We are hosted by Libsyn and you can subscribe to the Feminist Current podcast anywhere you like to listen. iTunes, Stitcher, Pocket Cast, TuneIn, Google Play, and beyond. You can even give us five stars and a review on iTunes. Show the world radical feminism is worth listening to. 
Feminist Current is a syndicated show produced and edited by myself, Megan Murphy, out of Vancouver, BC. If your station would like to air Feminist Current, you can find episodes at audioport.org. And finally, if you enjoyed this podcast, consider making a donation to support our work. Just visit feministcurrent.com and click the donate button.